Well, you can join me in turning to Mar- uh, Matthew chapter 5 in your copy of God's Word. And also, stick a bookmark in Psalm 37. So Matthew chapter 5, and also a bookmark Psalm 37. Uh, this summer we're working our way through the Beatitudes. We had an introduction a few weeks ago, and then we looked at Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, two weeks ago, last week, we uh, saw Blessed are those who mourn. And this week, we're looking at the third, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now again, that's a seemingly paradoxical statement. Just as it doesn't seem to make sense to us that the, those who mourn will be comforted in the same way how is or how do the meek inherit the earth? What would make far more sense to us is thinking of someone like Alexander the Great or Caesar Augustus, these superstar individuals from history who have an unbelievable measure of ambition and talent and leadership of ability and intelligence that is just way above the average. They're the ones we think of inheriting the earth, or at least getting closer to doing so than anyone else. And in, in our own day, you, there are different figures we can think of, Elon Musk or those types who are organized and powerful and confident and intelligent and able and aggressive. And those are the people we think of who are going to succeed And take the land for their own. But the Lord Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. Statements like this uh, were why the Jews in his day were so disappointed with him. Uh, When the Lord promised them a Messiah, they wanted someone like an Alexander the Great. Someone who would kick out their enemies and Restore the glory of Israel to what it was in Solomon's day. They had a vision of this conqueror who would come. And that's that fictional character is the one they were placing all their hope in. Instead, they got a carpenter's son from Nazareth who was crucified on a Roman cross. Who said things like, last is first. Giving is receiving. Dying is living. Losing is finding. Least is greatest. Serving is ruling and the meek inherit the earth. Uh, Lord willing, the Holy Spirit will illumine our minds as to what the Lord meant by this seemingly paradoxical statement. Let's pray and we'll read God's word. Heavenly Father, would you do uh, just that? Would you send your Holy Spirit to work and to bring light and illumination to your word that we might see the treasures within it that you have for your people? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, I guess the best place to begin is to ask the question, what does it mean to be meek? If the meek are going to inherit the earth, what does that mean? Who is that? Who are we talking about? And to answer that, I'll start with the negative side of the definition, what the meek are not. Meekness is not just a natural quality that some folks have and others do not. By the Lord Jesus, including this in the Beatitudes, it shows that all Christians are to be meek. Additionally, meek does not equal weak. I know we often can think that, and we can think about meekness in such a way where Maybe if we're honest, we don't want to be meek. We have, it has this association with weakness or spinelessness or being timid. Being meek doesn't mean that you're indecisive or you lack confidence. It doesn't mean you're shy or introverted or that you're just a nice, sweet person. You can be all of those things and not be meek. But what is meekness? Well, if we think about how the word was classically used in the Greek language, we've got a couple options. Uh, The writer Colin Brown, who wrote in the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, wrote this. In classical Greek literature, it was a word, meekness, used to describe tame animals, soothing medicine, a mild word, and a gentle breeze. All right, those are all images, I think, that we can understand. We can picture all of those. Tame animals, soothing medicine, a mild word, a gentle breeze, all of those are kind of pointing to self-control. They're evidencing self-control. Aristotle wrote of meekness, and he viewed it as being the median between too much anger and too little anger. 
So if you have a spectrum of anger from too much to too little, the center point, the the appropriate amount of anger, he said, was meekness. The person is balanced in their anger. They are self-controlled. So this is kind of the more classical Greek understanding, one who is self-controlled, one who is balanced. But what about in the New Testament? How is this word used? It's obviously used here in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew will use it two more times. He'll use it in chapter 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He continues, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, here it comes, gentle and lowly in heart. Here we see it again translated as gentle. Matthew 21.5 is another example. Jesus is quoting Zechariah 9.9 at the triumphal entry. He's about to enter Jerusalem on the donkey. And he says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Here we go. Humble and mounted on a donkey. So we've got gentle, we've got humble, and then there's one more time this word is used, and it's in 1 Peter 3, 4. There's a section on wives and husbands. And Peter is writing to wives, and he says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So there we go. Those are the other uses. Gentle, humble, gentle. Who will inherit the earth? The meek, the gentle, the humble. Now, if I'm being entirely honest, uh, I'm not quite satisfied with just knowing synonyms for meekness. Um, I'd I'd like something with a little more color. I think that would be helpful rather than just saying, well, the gentle inherit the earth, the humble inherit the earth, so now let's talk about the reward. So I want to get into some deeper color, and to get that, we're going to go to Psalm 37. You can turn there. Hopefully you bookmarked it. This is a psalm that Jesus is undoubtedly alluding to, as you'll see. Uh, Again, the Sermon on the Mount is simply, I think, probably uh, Matthew's cliff notes of that sermon. And uh, I would imagine the Lord would have used Psalm 37 as a footnote of this particular beatitude. And before... We look at Psalm 37, I want to remind you of a theological principle that should always be in the back of our minds. That as we interpret Scripture, there's this principle called the analogy of faith. The easiest way to make sense of it or to understand it is in the phrase, Scripture interprets Scripture. Because the Bible is one story, because it is All breathed out by God, as Paul writes. Because of that, the Bible is harmoniously united with no essential contradictions. And so that means that we can take confusing texts or difficult texts or vague texts and we can look elsewhere 
at a plainer text of Scripture to make sense of the hard text. And so I want to do that this morning. This isn't necessarily a confusing text, but I would just, again, like more color. And so with that in mind, let's look at Psalm 37 so that we might have a deeper understanding of what our Lord means by meek. Psalm 37 was written by David in his old age, and it is going to address the problem of evil, mainly the problem of why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Charles Haddon Spurgeon called this psalm the great riddle. How, Lord, is it possible that such wicked, immoral people seem to be doing so well and succeeding and they're in power, and yet your people are suffering and being trampled? David answers that question. And he calls the people to be patient and to wait on the Lord. And we could read all 40 psalms, but uh, not all, all 40 verses of this psalm, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to read the first 11. So would you follow along with me as I read the first 11 verses of Psalm 37? Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It, only, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You know, that last verse, that hits the nail right on the head, doesn't it? The wicked will be no more, but the meek shall inherit the land. Again, this had to be one of our Lord's footnotes as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. But here's our color. If we take meekness and put it under a microscope, what do we find? We find a person who trusts in the Lord. We find a person who does not fret because the wicked are succeeding. A person who is not envious that the wicked are currently experiencing prosperity and in control. One who is not angry and wrathful 
over their success. No, the meek trust in the Lord. They befriend faithfulness. They delight in the Lord. They trust in the mighty power of God. Not human ability, not human intelligence, not human power, not human organization or action. The meek, those described here as the righteous, those who will inherit the land are those who trust God. They trust in him and in his power and in his action. You can go through this psalm and five separate times you'll see David say, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Waiting on the Lord is trusting in him. It is the opposite of fretting. God's people are to patiently wait on him. We are to trust in him. We are to wait for him to act. David gets after this in just many different ways in the text. In verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Verse 9, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And we didn't read this, but you can look down to verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. And then it ends in verse 40. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. That's how David ends this psalm. With the righteous trusting in the Lord that he is their refuge. He is the hope, the stronghold, the place of safety for the believer. He is the one who delivers. And so we are to wait and trust him to act. And my argument is that that's the core of what it means to be meek. Of course, the meek are self-controlled. They are balanced. They are gentle. They are humble. But the source of all those things... The source of the humility, the gentleness, come from trusting in the Lord, knowing that He will act. Understanding this is what enables the believer to do what the Lord commanded. In this same chapter, Matthew 5, down in verse 44, the Lord Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We are only able to do that when we are trusting in our God and that he is in control and he will act and he will execute justice and he is a refuge for his people and will give them a land to dwell in. (coughs) That's my argument for the definition of meekness. And if we want an example, we don't have a better place to look than the one who described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Our Lord Jesus lived this. Over and over again in 
Psalm 37, we see the righteous, the righteous, the righteous. Well, he is the righteous one who will be killed by wicked and deceitful men. But he trusted in the power and action of God. It was not his character to retaliate, to seek vengeance, to be vindictive towards those who betrayed him and harmed him. He does not lose his faith when all his friends abandon and deny him. He trusted God the Father. Even as he stood before Pilate and in everything that followed. And on the cross... We hear the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Lord Jesus was meekness in the flesh. He knew that he would die, but he trusted that his Father would raise him on the third day and give him victory over his enemies, and he would ascend to the right hand of the Father and be given authority over all things. Peter speaks of the Lord's meekness in 1 Peter 2.23. He says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There's a question for you. What would it look like in your life to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Your circumstances, your trials and your difficulties in life, what would it look like to entrust them to the one who judges justly? And to not fret over evil and wrongdoing, but simply wait on the Lord to act. That was the character of our Lord. And yet there were times in which the Lamb of God was seen more as the Lion of Judah. We know of the instances when he rebuked the Pharisees and called down woes upon them. He was angered when his disciples tried to keep the children from coming to him. He said, it's better to have a great millstone tied around your neck and to be drowned in the sea then face what's coming for those who lead little ones into sin. He made a whip and drove money changers from the temple. He calls Peter Satan when Peter attempts to dissuade him from going to the cross. Our Lord could be a lion. And so this behavior is not inconsistent with meekness. I found a note in one of my study Bibles. Um, it pointed out that when thinking of our Lord, we are to consider the whole package. One who has a gentle spirit because he trusts God, but at the same time he possesses immense strength and self-control, which he exhibits in extending love rather than retaliation against those who do him evil. But he stands up fearlessly in defense of others or in defense of the truth as the occasion arises. 
that combination of strength, willingness to put our lives on the line for others and to stand for the truth when necessary, and also being gentle and non-retaliatory, trusting in the Lord. That's the best picture of meekness I can give you this morning. Well, what's the end for the meek? We see David repeat this over and over again in Psalm 37. We see what Jesus says in the second half of this, this verse. They will inherit the earth. David says they will delight themselves in abundant peace. Psalm 37 says that the righteous will inherit the land. They will live and prosper and rest and know peace forever in a place that is being prepared and will be given to them by the Lord. And so they are not to fret. They are to wait by faith for God to act. Now what is the action? What is God going to do? He is going to remove the wicked. He is going to expel them from the land. He is going to cut them off. You see in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 37, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Why? For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Yes, they're in power now. Yes, they are prosperous now. And yes, they are smug and feel safe and secure and confident that their day of reckoning will never come. But things are not going to end well for them. They will have to answer to the one who judges justly. Verse 22 of Psalm 37 says, Those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. You can't understand the meek inheriting the land without understanding the flip side of the coin that the cursed or those cursed by him shall be cut off. For an earthly example, we see in the book of Joshua, that book of scripture that recounts the children of Israel entering the land of Canaan and the Lord acting the Lord giving them victory. And we, we see this. Remember the battle of Jericho. They march in circles around the city and then they stop and scream and the, the walls of the city fall down. God acts. He judges justly. The wicked are, are driven from the land and perish so that that land might be given to his chosen people. I'm very aware that that part of Israel's history is something that makes some Christians very embarrassed today. We're embarrassed of the conquest of Canaan, driving the inhabitants of Canaan from the land. I would imagine that such embarrassment will probably stem from a deficient view of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of sin, and also an ignorance 
of the promises of God, just like that in Psalm 37. The meek will inherit the land, but the wicked will be cut off. I'd also say that if you have a problem with the conquest of Canaan, then you're really going to have an issue with what's coming at the end of the age. The great event that Joshua's conquest was only a tiny shadow of is the returning of the Lord Jesus and the removal of every trace of evil and wickedness from the face of the earth. That day is coming. There will be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell and nothing accursed will be allowed to enter. The wicked, Jesus talks about this more than anyone. The wicked will be rounded up by the angels and removed and carried off to the place of torment. And the righteous will be given this new land, as Scripture says, and they will reign as co-heirs with Christ. We sang about this in our second hymn today, that we, we will reign with him. We'll be given the land. And all that is true. And we can rightly look at the sinful, broken world and say, come Lord quickly. But there's one final thought I want you to leave with. One final thing you must not forget. You can read Psalm 37 and then look around at the world and see evil and see those who are wicked and those who are evildoers and you will be tempted, just as I am, to grit your teeth and you might not retaliate, but you might grit your teeth and think, just wait. Your day is coming. You might be in a position of power right now. You might be in a place of control now. But one day, you're going to get yours. And if we aren't careful, we can allow that anger and hatred of our enemies to fester within us. We don't do anything, but in our hearts, we hate them. How how, how do we... Keep from that? How do we guard against that? By remembering the first two Beatitudes. By remembering that our meekness flows out of our poverty of spirit and our mourning our sin. Why do we trust the Lord? Because we do not trust ourselves. We trust him because we are spiritually impoverished. We are beggars surviving on the alms of grace. And we mourn our poverty. We mourn our sin. We acknowledge that we are not any better than the wicked. We can look at them and think, if not for the grace of God, so goes I. We aren't the righteous because we are better more moral people who have been made better by our holy, responsible decisions. We are the righteous 
because we have been washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ. And he has clothed us in his perfect obedience. That's how we guard against that anger and hatred, by knowing our spiritual poverty and by mourning it. That will produce meekness. It will cause us to trust in him and him alone and wait for him to act and look to him for our refuge. And by his grace alone, we will inherit the land. I want to end with some lines from a poem written by Anne Cousins. This, is, this poem was turned into a hymn. We sing it often here, but it's based on the letters of the Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford. I want to read some lines to you. Soon shall the cup of glory wash down earth's bitterest woes. Soon shall the desert briar break into Eden's rose. The curse shall change to blessing, the name on earth that's banned. Be graven on the white stone in Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I shall sleep sound in Jesus, filled with his likeness rise, to live and to adore him, to see him with these eyes. Between me and resurrection, but paradise doth stand, then, then for glory dwelling in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. I have borne scorn and hatred. I have borne wrong and shame. Earth's proud ones have reproached me for Christ's thrice blessed name. Where God his seal set fairest, they've stamped their foulest brand. But judgment shines like noonday in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your grace and by the working of your spirit, would you enable us, your people, to to trust more deeply in you as our refuge, as our hope, as our king, as our savior and redeemer. Almighty God, would we trust in you, recognizing our own poverty of spirit, our own mourning of our sin and iniquity. Father, would it produce within us trust? Trust that would enable you Trust that would enable us to love you and to love neighbor, even those that despise us. 
even those that plot against us. Father, would you, would you be with us and would you work this within us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.